0: Welcome to episode two hundred and sixty-five of the actual astronomy podcast. A hundred more. And somebody could listen to one podcast every day for a year. All right. I'm Chris. And joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking at the night sky. And this podcast is for anybody else who likes going out under the stars. So we're gonna read some listener emails, Shane. Um been a while since we uh, we did this, eh?
1: Yeah, it has been. Uh, we've You and I have been doing a lot of observing, and mm. you know, we've had a couple of guests here and there, and uh, the time just flies by. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Dennis had written us a real short one, and I was going to start with this. Um, yep. He wrote and said that uh, he was listening to the uh, October Observing Podcast and heard uh, you hoping for a list of uh, single transits. Um, and so this would be uh, shadow transits on Jupiter by the uh, Jovian moons or the Galilean moons. Uh, and he just sent us a reminder that in Sky and Telescope magazine, each month they publish a list of the transits and occultations each month. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's a pretty good uh, reminder of where people can find that.
1: Yeah, I'm just pulling out my Sky News. I think Sky News might do the same thing, I, if I'm not mistaken, but maybe I'm
0: wrong. I don't think, no, nothing like that detailed. Where okay. you have, uh, yeah, all those shadow transits and that they're gonna, they will give you in Sky News because I know because I help write the base information for that. Uh, for the RESC, we just do double shadow transits for the most part.
1: Oh, not the single ones.
0: Not the single ones, and not the occultations. Okay. So in in Got Sky it. and Telescope, they give you like a like a full page, and it's sort of just data heavy. Um, there's a lot of details. I was looking at the one. Um, for October last night, just as uh, so I was prepping for this, and I was like, "Oh yeah, they they do give you quite uh, quite a few." But uh, yeah, the double shadows are really neat to see. But um, unfortunately, just focus on those, you're only going to get the uh, you know uh, the the ones that line up for your area, which is you know only every once in a while. And then chances are it's going to be cloudy,
1: right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you really want to observe something, it'll be cloudy.
0: Yeah, but there's all kinds of single shadow transits. Like, how many times have I just been looking at Jupiter? I'm like, oh, there's a single mm-hmm. shadow transit going on. But honestly, had I known that, I would have set up just, just to watch the single shadow uh, uh, transit just because it, it worked well for our area. So I got to maybe figure out a way to get those um, sort of slotted into the RASC uh, stuff a little bit more. But uh, yeah, it's sort of just been the tradition there only to do the, uh, the doubles. All right, JR sent us uh, an email. Do you want to take uh, take a read of that for us?
1: Yeah, for sure. So he says, hi, Chris and Shane, <laughs> uh, I blame you guys exclamation mark. Um, I'm not one to make an impulse buy, especially when it comes to astronomy gear. Uh, but after stumbling on this cloudy nights thread, uh, and listening to your discussions about the 50 millimeter Borg, I broke out the credit card tonight. <laughs> <laughs> now, granted, I only spent about $50, but the people talking on cloudy nights about the AstroTech AT50 made me think that Little Telescope might be the answer to what I've been looking for. Uh, I use the Celestron Evolution 8 inch, uh, so sidebar, that's a, a Schmidt Cassegrain. Um, and then uh, he goes on to say, mo- or, so he uses the uh, Evolution 8 uh, most of the time. Uh, on an alt mount, but I've always wanted to figure out how to piggyback my AstroTech AT60ED uh, on the main 8-inch tube for wide field views at the same time. Uh, there's no good way to mount a dovetail rail on the 8-inch in the spot where the tube would balance well, but the AT50 should fit in a set of rings mounted in the rear mirror cell right where I want it to go. Uh, so thanks for singing the praises of good viewing with smaller apertures. Uh, the AT50 for $50, uh, surely won't measure up to the legendary Borg performance, but I'm stoked. Uh, I really enjoy the podcast and wish you guys all the best. Please keep going. Clear skies, JR. And you know, Chris, when I read this, I, I didn't reply to him cause I think, uh, you, uh, you, got yeah, to I sent him it. An open, and, yep. but my first thought is I bet these two telescopes, the AT50 and our little Borgs are way more similar than they are yeah, different. You I know, when so, it comes yeah. to viewing. So,
0: yeah, the only difference might be that, and, and I'm not 100 percent sure of this, but I'm fairly certain, is that I think the AT50s uh, are can only be set up to do one and a quarter eyepieces, mm. mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. which is fine. I actually was was maybe looking at one because so I've been using the Borg 50 millimeter, and my original plan for that scope that that you help uh, set up, Shane, I think. They ran about uh, five to 10 times the cost of these AT50s. Um, But I've been using that more as a standalone telescope than I thought I would. I thought what I would do with that scope is to use it primarily as a finder. And then on the odd occasion, I would use it as a standalone 50 millimeter telescope. However, the opposite has proved out that I use it um, probably 95% of the time as a standalone telescope. And then, um, uh, it takes some rigmarole to actually set it up as a finder. And, you know, like, you know, there's lots of good little scopes out there, like these AT 50s that I could, you know, I really should pick one of those up and just sort of permanently set it up as a finder and then just have those, those two separate scopes because, uh, yeah, I do enjoy observing the 50 millimeter aperture a heck of a lot more than I thought I would.
1: Yeah. They, they are so fun. Um, it's part of it is just the ease, you know, of how easy it is to set them up. They don't require any cooling. Um, but I agree. I've, I've used mine more than I thought. I've tried to adapt it more as a finder scope, but it really just belongs on its own and, uh, just works so well.
0: I think so. And so these, uh, 50 millimeters, they're going to be, um, an F4, I think. So with, um, Uh, 200-millimeter focal length, that means your your 25 or so millimeter eyepiece is going to give eight power, which is generally going to give you about a uh, six and a quarter or so, just more than a six-degree field of view, um, which would be a pretty good binocular field of view for a 50-millimeter binocular. And that's a a nice exit, people. So, you know, probably like 6.3-degree true field of view, something like that. Uh, They're supposed to be reasonably sharp you put you, then you can put like a decent plossel. You can get like an astrotech, um, PLOSL, which are similar to some of the other ones, um, I bought last year uh, freezing on the board. And, uh, yeah, that, that's going to give you a pretty nice, uh, nice combination. Or if you use something like there's lots of 20 millimeter, um, 70 degree eyepieces out there these days. So, so, uh, you know, that's going to give you, um, you know, 10 power and 70 degrees is going to give you like a seven degree field of view, um, at 10 power. So, so that's, uh, that's pretty good. That's a nice little wide field, uh, instrument, especially if you're using it on a Schmidt Cassegrain, you're really going to have the best of both worlds there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's a lot of fun. Um, yeah. So I, I, I've too been reading those <laughs> too have been reading those threads. <laughs> Um, let's see, Bill wrote us this. I really like Bill's, um, Bill Weary's, uh, observer out on the uh, west coast of Canada here. And, uh, uh, you know, sometimes he's been on the show and certainly, uh, I've communicated lots with Bill, uh, over the years. He's, he's a great, uh, great observer and a really good, uh, supporter of amateur astronomy. Um, so Bill writes, sorry guys, uh, but there won't be any observations from me, uh, for that. And I think it was just talking about, um, an observation that we were just discussing, because uh, he was going to the Whistler um, Fungus Among Us Mushrooms Festival.
1: <laughs> I saw that. I love, I love that name.
0: So he was going to be helping out with the elementary school presentations and forest walks, and he was hoping that it rains, because I guess when it rains, of course, you get more mushrooms, and so there's more uh, to show people when that occurs. But uh, it sounds like they're having a bit of a drought there, right? Eh?
1: Um, I wasn't aware. No, uh, that's too bad.
0: Yeah. They're having a drought on, on the West coast. And I I couldn't help but think that it's incredibly ironic that, you know, uh, here bill is for once trying to do uh, some public outreach where he wants it to rain. Of course, if this was an astronomy event, you would have (laughs) nothing but rain. Right. So I was like, I think I wrote back and said, uh, you got to get this uh, lined up or more with some astronomy programming. Um, Anyway, he goes on to say, um, he was hoping for the, he's hoping for the occultation of uh, Uranus by the moon, uh, on October 11th. So on October 11th, I think we mentioned this in our, um, objects to observe this month, uh, the moon is going to occult or pass the moon will pass in front of, um, the, uh, the planet Uranus. Sorry. I'm just getting some of the white charcoal I was using. <laughs> I'm in the same spot I used for my sketch. I'm getting my like, white charcoal all over myself. um, Bill goes on to say, um, very civilized time. I guess it's on the, in, in the evening hours for him on the West coast. And, uh, he said that I have had some excellent observations of Jupiter recently. Um, and that, uh, let's see, he had a GRS and simultaneous a shadow transit one night and a reappearance of, uh, of a moon on another night. And, uh, late on the night of the 25th, uh, into the 26th of September, um, he was able to observe the uh, great red spot using his 20-inch uh, soon. I think he has one of those 20-inch F, uh, F3.3 or F3.5 uh, Dobbs. Uh, pretty cool instruments. So the seeing was incredible. And for most of us, uh, and for most of the time, I was using uh, 385 magnification. That must be wild on a 20-inch scope to be pushing 400 power.
1: I can't even imagine <laughs> it would be, it would be nuts. Um, I think he, his daub has a tracking feature, doesn't it?
0: I don't know, but still, I, I mean, that, that would yeah. just be an amazing, oh, an amazing gee. view. Yeah. 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 Pretty, pretty wild. Uh, he said it was fun because he was trying out three different five millimeter eyepieces. Um, uh, he was using a five millimeter T6 Nagler, a five millimeter genuine Bader or batter orthoscopic and a five millimeter Pentax XW. And he goes on to say, (laughs) sorry to say Shane, but the minimal glass came out at the bottom in all ways. The scope was tracking, so field of view wasn't an issue. Nagler and Pentax were about the same. With the Pentax, a hair brighter, I've had the same findings. For me, I have to wear glasses and I find with the Naglers, I can't wear my glasses. So my stigmatism impacts the field of view greatly. I find the Pentax are a little brighter because I can wear my glasses with them, I get a sharper feel. It is my own personal thing. Bill goes on to say my six millimeter ethos um, was better also, and that he wishes he had one of his uh, Orion SW um, Lamp Anems uh, out for a real five millimeter shootout. But that, that's a pretty cool little shootout anyway. Yeah,
1: um, yeah.
0: Three eyepieces.
1: Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Um, you know, a bunch of wide fields in there and then the uh, the ortho, It's uh, that's super cool, you know, to just see what they all show and how the view changes and which one do you prefer?
0: Yeah, he sent us um, a, a link to uh, two images by one of the uh, Victoria center RAC center members and uh, uh, mentioned that uh, uh, basically his images through the big scope were about the same as, as those that, uh, that this imager was, uh, was getting. And uh, he also, Bill also detailed that the thin lines that wrap around the GRS were clean uh, and there were swirls inside the GRS. So I could, uh, as well, Bill, I could see those thin lines wrapping around the GRS. Um, but uh, that's a limit of uh, of a 4-inch or 5-inch telescope. And uh, could not. I couldn't see any swirls in the GRS. But certainly I have seen swirls in the GRS before in like uh, 16 and, and uh, 17, 18, 20-inch instruments. So uh, definitely a really cool thing. Do you ever see any of the, the details inside the red spot before, Shane?
1: Um, I've seen like the color variations, like in terms of uh, tone and maybe a little bit in brightness. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's super neat. Like the, the, the Jupiter is one of those, uh, objects that there's just really no limit to the detail you can see it. it well, the limiting factors, your telescope, and then the, uh, the condition of the atmosphere. But it, when all of that you know, lines up, you know, if the atmosphere is good and you've got some aperture, man, you can just see so much detail everywhere. And, and it's like, you know, it, it, it kind of reminds me of the moon, how like some craters have craters and Jupiter, it's like some features have features.
0: <laughs> yeah. Sort of, uh, features all the way down. Eh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very yeah, cool. No. Bill goes on to say that, uh, I guess this is, this must be the coming weekend, he said, I guess the Jasper Dark Sky Festival runs from the 14th to uh, the following week. So it must be this uh, next weekend, which will be just uh, in a day or so. That this podcast is released and Bill's heading up to the Jasper Dark Sky Festival. And I think he's bringing his big scope and he and Eric are are planning to uh, to meet up and uh, and maybe do some outreach on Friday night and uh, during the day on Saturday. So that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Two people we correspond with pretty frequently. Um, yeah. Wished I was there.
0: <laughs> yeah, I certainly do. Um, for a couple of reasons. So one, I, I really would like to look through, I think Eric has the 17 and a half inch F four and a half or F five, and then Bill is 20 inch. And then, uh, they're both, uh, you know, much better sketchers than I am. So, um, I, I really like to sketch with other people. That's really, um, where I improve my skills. So, to learn um, the sketching I've done so far up to this uh, white on black technique is uh, from people like, uh, you know, Risa, who, who is a professor of fine arts at, at the University of Regina. She, she and, and her friend Sarah taught me a few things. And, uh, and then like Randall Rosenfeld and uh, Mark Bratton and, uh, and Kathleen Houston, uh, you know, have all sort of played, played a part in actually showing me how to sketch in the field. So, you know, here we are sitting at the telescopes doing it, not uh, sort of theoretic, theoretical ramblings on a, on a podcast or something. And I almost need to do the same thing with uh, somebody in the black on, on white, although I don't know that Eric and Bill do that. I think they do more of the the graphic on the, uh, on the white paper, but uh, I think I can probably learn a few things from those guys. It would be awful fun.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's always, I've never thought about sketching as like a social endeavor, but it makes a lot of sense.
0: Well, maybe it's not for some people that have skill, but for me, I I need to see it. Like if Mm -hmm. I see it, then I can do it. So, and the main thing that I learned, um, uh, from both uh, Kathleen and, and Mark and Randall in particular, um, is, is how quickly it can be done. Um, so I thought that you would be really worrying over the sketch, um, for very, very long periods of time, maybe hours in a night, like three hours, or maybe over the course of several nights. Because I think uh, for those of us that have read like the Stephen James O'Meara books, I think that's sort of part of his technique, which is fine, but that's that's just his own personal uh, take on doing it. Uh, but in the field, like I remember watching Mark um, Bratton do a sketch of, uh, of the Veil Nebula. I think it was for his Herschel book. And, uh, I was just shocked how quick, like we were just observing together and, and him actually doing the sketch hardly impacted. We would typically take, um, as long, um, a look at, at the, at the veil nebula anyway. So he would kind of come in, uh, put his, uh, you know, pencil to paper, uh, take it away, put it on table. I would and have my look. And then after a couple of minutes, I, I would have kept it tracking and then he would hop back in and, and up at the eyepiece and, and do, uh, do a little bit more sketching and observing and then, and then sort of switch back and forth just like you would regularly. And hardly I, I thought it would be really cumbersome for, to observe with somebody who was sketching that I would maybe be uh, interfering or impeding with them. And he was like, no, no, come on. Like, just, just observe with me while I do it. And then you can see how it's done. And that really inspired me to do it because I realized that it was something that I could see myself doing. Right
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. That's awesome.
0: Yeah. And then the same with Kathleen, uh, I'm not a solar observer. Kathleen's a a tremendous solar observer. And, uh, and even though I don't observe the sun and I've only done a few sketches of the sun, um, being able to sit with her like in the daylight and kind of seeing how she like holds her, her uh, clipboard and and materials while she's sketching, that really put me over the edge. So yeah. Anyway, bit of a, bit of a tangent there, but, uh, Shane, do you want to read this email from John? I think John is, uh, one of our new uh, Patreon supporters. So uh, he sent us this this really nice email and then, uh, and then joined as a Patreon supporter. So we really appreciate that.
1: Yeah. So John says, uh, dear Chris and Shane, uh, I want to thank you both for fanning the flames of my old love observing. Uh, when I was a kid, I spent many hours and then in brackets, wait for it, going out under the stars <laughs> with my department store <laughs> refractor Uh, And then an 8-inch Celestron Schmidt-Cassegrain that was generously lent to me by a friend of my dad's. Uh, After that scope went back to its owner, Uh, life crowded out optical observing until recently. Uh, I began listening to your podcast this year, and you guys really lit the fire to start optical observing again. Uh, I discovered a telescope loan program at my local library and got back in with a a 4.5-inch Star Blast. I think that's a little reflector, Chris, am I? Yep. Yeah, okay. Um, So I had a blast looking at all my old friends. uh, And then recently I bought a pair of Oberwerk 15 by 70 binoculars for my first piece of equipment on re-entry. Absolutely loving vinyl viewing. Uh, I am looking to get an 8-inch Dobsonian at some point when I uh, have money to spend on a telescope. I'm really interested in DSO observing and an eight inch is about my financial and logistical limit. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also can't wait to start comparing refractors and reflectors uh, for myself. Uh, you You guys really got me interested in quality refractors. I am still so new. And, uh, you know, we've said it many times, Chris, an eight inch daub is, you know, if that's the only telescope you ever own there, mm-hmm. that's a great telescope. I still, I still kind of regret selling mine and occasionally, mm-hmm. you know, toy with the thought of acquiring another one, but, uh, maybe one day.
0: Yeah. I gotta, I gotta say, Jim, uh, who's one of our listeners was at my uh, place, uh, a week ago. And uh, he brought his 10 inch, and it's a few years old now, I think. But he brought his 10 inch uh, Skywatcher f47, yeah. and and his 10 inch um, is his 10 inch uh, reflector Dobsonian is was way smaller than than my 8 inch reflector that I started with, and it was way way better too. So just uh, yeah. um, amazing the how the quality and, and the size has uh, has transformed over the years.
1: Yeah, for sure. So John goes on to say, I also recently joined a local astronomy club. Uh, Among one of the greatest benefits of being a member is having use of a few good telescopes, uh, loaners as well as telescopes at the club's uh, site. Uh, There is a fixed 10 inch in an observatory shed and various other larger and smaller reflectors. And a couple maybe three refractors. Uh, I went to my first star party ever last weekend at the society's uh, dark site and had a blast looking through our 12 and a half inch uh, 1402 millimeter focal length homemade reflector. Uh, the most impressive views for me were the binary systems. I've never seen such uh, sharp stars with such great separation and the colors. Uh, I was never initially that nuts about double star observing. I am now, uh, you know, and, and, having some aperture like that would really help to bring out some star color too, which w- would be, uh, even that much more enjoyable. Um, then he goes on to say, uh, second coolest was seeing individual stars in clusters that have that familiar, uh, gray fuzz, but deeper gray. And now with pinpricks of light, uh, so beautiful. Uh, I have to say, I was not as impressed with the view of Andromeda, It was neat to see her satellite galaxy making a fuzzy appearance, but I thought Andromeda herself would have shown more detail. You know, and Chris, Andromeda is a tricky one sometimes because, (laughs) you know, you can really like see the dust lanes uh, and sometimes even some of the globular clusters and star clouds within it. But you really need to have a good night for all of that to Mm -hmm. to really wow you. You know, it's, uh, it's funny, but, you know, transparency and seeing certainly impact the views of that one.
0: Yeah. And it's, uh, it's only about the past. Oh, maybe during the past lunation, I had a good view of it too, during not this uh, new moon period, but the new p- moon period before, maybe it was early on in this new moon. Um, but it's only just getting high enough. Um, now in the evening sky, of course, uh, if you get up in the wee hours, it's, it's running right overhead, but, uh, you want to get it when it's up, you know, 50 or, or more degrees, um, above the horizon to get out of any of the light pollution, any of that stuff. And then, um, you know, sit down and, and look through your eyepiece and just really, um, go over it very carefully, very slowly, making sure to get uh, sharp focus. And you can start to see, especially in like the outer regions of the bands, you, you can start to pull out, uh, quite a bit of detail there. It's, uh, yeah, it's one of those things though, on, on any kind of marginal night, um, it's, it's a weird object because you can see it very easily, even on a night that's not that good, but to see detail in it, um, you really need that, that great, awesome night. eh?
1: Yeah, you really do. And I I've seen some, maybe two or three times, uh, and I think trying to think, uh, this might've all been with my eight inch job way back in the day, but, uh, two or three nights where it was photographic, like Andromeda just blew my mind with how Mm -hmm. good it looked. So, um, I always go back, even though I've seen Andromeda a thousand times, I always look at it whenever I'm out under a dark mm-hmm. sky in case it's one of those good nights, because it is just so beautiful. And when, when all of that works out for you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for, sure. for yeah. sure. So anyway, John goes on to continue here. Where did I leave off? Uh, okay. Uh, also disappointing, uh, was the absence of cloud deck features on Jupiter and Saturn. Uh, Saturn's rings and moons were definitely a new view for me, but neither planet showed cloud deck features. And then he asks, are filters suggested? Um, so that's first question. Uh, then were the lenses all wrong for the job? Uh, maybe eyes not adapted to the brightness. So what are your thoughts, Chris?
0: Yeah, I don't know. Um, could just be a whole variety of different things. Yeah. You need reasonably good, uh, conditions, um, you know, as well as a few other things, but yeah, I mean, definitely we're, we're seeing some cloud bands on, uh, both Jupiter and Saturn had the other night, I was just out in the evening, just, uh, messed around a bit and I had a pretty good view of, uh, there is a pretty good band on, on Saturn right now as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so a couple things, make sure the, uh, the little reflector is, uh, properly aligned. And then, uh, if there's, if there's a lot of flaring, like if the veins or some of the other parts aren't darkened down, any kind of scatter can just obliterate that fine detail. Like this is very, very fine, um, detail, but yeah, you can try some filters. Like if you have a blue filter, um, maybe like a, or this, like a rotten 56 or something like that. Anyway, just like a light blue filter. That's going to be your friend on, uh, on these planets for sure. Um, so that would be one thing dark adapted to the brightness or sorry, eye not adapted to the brightness. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think, you know, you should be able to see them regardless of your eye adaptation to brightness. One thing you can try doing is uh, if there, if you can set up where there's a light off in the distance to kind of trigger those fo- photo um, color photoreceptors in the eye, then that can help seeing conditions were not perfect. Yeah. I think if you're having a uh, slight wisp of cloud and some haze like that can obliterate, um the uh the details on the planets and the planets were only 30 to 45 degrees off there uh, yeah it might be a little bit low especially for jupiter like i you want it to be getting a little bit higher than that saturn's going to be reasonably low um anyway portal is well that's a that should be reasonably uh it's not really going to matter your portal sky so yeah what are yeah. your thoughts shane what do you, you want to chime in with
1: yeah so maybe i'll just read a little bit and then i'll give you my thoughts because i probably mm. should have included these details uh, uh seeing conditions were not perfect as you mentioned chris mm. a slight wisp of cloud from time to time and the planets were only 30 to 45 degrees off the horizon um so some thoughts that i have is if this was still through the 12 and a half inch um even the eight inch really um that's a, a lot of light gathering that's happening there. And I find sometimes uh, more aperture doesn't help me on the planets because the, yeah. the brightness just washes out some of the features. Yeah, So you may even want to try like a neutral density filter, which just takes some of that light out and it may enable you to see a little more detail. Um, I've even done that hydrogen alpha observing or white light observing on the sun. Just mm-hmm. toning down the brightness helps your eye relax and you see more. Um, so there's that, um, when the seeing conditions aren't great back off on the power, you know, if you're using too much power, you're also amplifying the negative effects of the atmosphere. So sometimes reducing power actually allows you to see more detail. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is, uh, the first time I ever looked at Jupiter, uh, I still remember this view, uh, through my eight inch Newtonian, um, I was really disappointed. Like all I could really see was kind of some brownish uh, with the equatorial banding, Yeah, maybe the polar regions. And that was it. And I was expecting it to be far more photographic. Now I don't think that night was a great night of seeing either, but what I found is just observing Jupiter over time. And and I think this really just applies to observing in general, but you just, you, you learn to see more just, teaching your eye to, uh, uh, kind of look for some of that detail at the eyepiece. So I think as you observe Jupiter more and more and more, uh, just naturally you'll start to see more and more detail because you're spending time there. um, and you'll start to notice subtle things uh, that maybe you would have missed before. Um, and maybe the last thing that I'll pass on, and we've talked a little bit about this probably about a year ago, Chris, when we were doing planetary observing, then, um, one of the tips that I got from a, a very seasoned veteran is, um, to start observing with like the highest, like if you're doing planetary, start observing, uh, with the highest magnification magnification that you have, even if the seeing conditions aren't great and spend, 15 to 30 minutes, trying to, you know, squeeze out as much detail as you can with that highest magnification possible, then back off the magnification to what the seeing is actually sort of enabling. And, um, uh, this gentleman that told me this tip, he said like your eye, then, you know, you're sort of like getting it used to seeing like very fleeting, uh, very, uh, you know, marginal detail at high magnification, but then when you back it off uh, to where the seeing supports it, it just is so much easier for your eye to see things that he felt he was able to see more planetary detail that way. So,
0: yeah, kind of an yeah, interesting that, technique, yeah, that might help. Um, and then as well, like, like you were saying, Shane, it, it depends on the powers, and I've always found like between like 100, 125 or 135 power. Um, often you know if the sky is any good at all that that uh magnification should give you some decent views mm-hmm. um through just about any scope so you should be able to get it focused in and uh but if you know for example on some nights where i've been using um 150 power i, I can barely see any details on on jupiter i have to wait a long time and then I back it down, my next power down is like that it can easily just let me 106 power, say, give or take. And then, um, you know, I, I can see quite a bit of details most of the time uh, with that sort of power. So, um, and yeah, I mean, the other thing I'll say is if people are looking for sort of the one of the sort of magic filters, I know everybody always wants like sort of the magic bullets with a lot of things is that beta contrast booster, um, which I think works spectacularly on all of the planets and gives you, uh, the majority of a, of a filter, uh, benefit, uh, that you can see there's, there's all kinds of other filters you can get, but for the most part, I use the, the beta contrast, uh, booster and, uh, and I've read lots of, and the reason why is just having read lots of reports. And I own like a huge selection of dye in the glass, uh, Lumicon filters, which are, uh, sort of next level up filters Uh, anyway, just for color filters, but I hardly ever use them anymore just because I like the, uh, the contrast booster so much.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you there. Uh, So John's email goes on to say, um, it was a Bordel six ish site. Uh, doesn't have the details on the two eyepieces that were used, but one was 35 millimeter and one was 16 no filters. Jupiter was just really bright. Uh, same issue when I observe with the four and a half inch, as well as the binoculars, um, just a bright disc. If I spend more time looking while well, my eyes adapt, well, I don't, again, I don't think it's an eyes adapting thing. I think it's just maybe the seeing conditions weren't that good that night. Um, and just keep on observing. And I think you'll, you know, you'll either time it with better seeing, or you'll just start to see more, uh, detail as your eyes get used to observing Jupiter, uh, over and over. Mm -hmm. Uh, So anyway, he says, I will cut myself off here and maybe go on and on again another time. Uh, I really just wanted to thank you both for inspiring me with your podcast knowledge and love of observing. Sincerely, John. And then he says, PS, as a pilot, the term sucker hole refers to sunny blue holes slash breaks and otherwise solid cloud decks. Uh, They are called sucker holes because inexperienced pilots look up and say, hey, look, uh, I could just pop up there uh, fly around on top, uh, totally clear blue skies, then pop right back through that hole. And then he says, well, once you go up through a hole, they always disappear. Now you are in trouble, uh, on top with no safe way back down, uh, at least no, uh, under visual flight rules. Uh, Mm. and then he says sucker, Yeah, (laughs) which is interesting. I never knew that.
0: I never heard that before, but I, I, after I had read that email and I responded saying, I hadn't heard it before. I, I think somebody had somebody in my class had had heard that when I said does anybody know what a sucker hole is? Somebody else um, must have had some aviation experience and had recounted pretty much uh, the same thing. I, I was shocked. So I, I think for those um, uh, for those that are pilots or, or have an interest in aviation, I, I guess that is uh, it, it. Must be like with astronomy, a very common uh, piece of vernacular.
1: Yeah, yeah, it must be. Yeah, mm. great, great email though. Appreciate hearing uh, John's, um, you know, kind of uh, re-entry back into the hobby and, mm. and doing some observing. I, I love it.
0: Yeah, and thanks for uh, being a, a Patreon supporter. What do you, what do you think about the Bortle scale, Shane? What, uh, what are your thoughts on? I, I just I, I always find it yeah. kind of confusing.
1: Yeah. I, I've never really paid a lot of attention to it. Um, I, I get the intent and respect it. You know, it is nice to be able to, um, have a, like a quantitative way to analyze, uh, like a particular dark site or any site really for that matter, and then be able to tell somebody about it and then create some expectations. But, um, I don't know, there's so many factors that mm. can go into your, your location and, and some of it is highly variable. Like, uh, you know, when we go camping down to the grasslands, uh, that would be a Bortle one sky, I think, right. I, I don't think there's anything darker, but we've been there when there's been a lot of campers like in, in RVs with lights on and now our portal one sky is not portal one anymore. Right,
0: exactly. So,
1: so there's variables there, you know, there's sky glow, there's all sorts of things that kind of impact the conditions. So I, you know, it's a rough guide, you know, to me and, and it gives you an indication of what the sky should be like when you get there. But, um, yeah, there's always other things that contribute to the conditions.
0: Yeah, so the Bortle scale was developed by John Bortle, um, and he wrote an article in, uh, in 2001 published in Sky and Telescope magazine to help amateurs uh, evaluate uh, darkness at, at observing sites. And then like since, and one of the things that was attached to it, so the scale goes from, uh, where does it goes It goes from, it's it's kind of confusing because it goes from one to nine, Okay. And that is a little bit confusing because it, the numbers are inversely uh, proportional and related to the actual um, stars that you can see. So Bortle uh, 1 sky is the darkest sky where you can see um, perhaps uh, 7.6 to eight magnitude stars uh, versus on the other end of the Bortle scale, which is Bortle 9, where perhaps you could uh, do no better than seeing Fourth magnitude stars, so I find that aspect of it a little bit confusing. This came along after I was observing for a number of years too, and where um, it became more popular, I think. Shane, I don't know if if, uh, if you picked up on this or not, but I think with the clear sky charts, they typically use this Bortle scale and the color shading where mm-hmm. um, the Bortle one or, or darker skies are are color coded as black, and the next one is sort of uh, a gray and then blue, green, yellow, orange, red, and then white for like the core inner circle, um, light pollution. I find that is handy, but then I do, I always have to check when someone says, Oh, I'm under a portal, um, six. I'm like, well, what is, so that's in the city. Okay. So that's like that red zone. I, I really have to look at it. I don't intuitively know it because, uh, I sort of didn't start observing with it. And I think that maybe for, uh, newer astronomers or younger astronomers I think they're they're maybe better able to uh to correlate it then there's some other things like uh we've talked about these in the past i'm going to go too bright down this hole i'd like to get the guy in from the sky quality meter uh someday but mm-hmm. uh, they, they also correlated to the sky quality meter measurements um and then the descriptions of the night sky so back back in the day before everybody started using this Typically, what we we would refer to is the naked eye limiting magnitude, and then kind of uh, what you could see. For example, uh, if if you can see stars into the seventh magnitude and see objects like uh, the uh, Triangulum Galaxy M thirty three, and and uh, you know, for example, see the the shadow being cast by Jupiter or whatever, you know, you're at a really really dark site. Uh, whereas in, in a city, you know, even in a city where maybe you can see fourth magnitude stars, um, you might be able to have some reasonably good observing in that spot if it's kind of uh, darkish. Maybe um, you live in an area where there's not uh, street lights on your street and maybe um, your neighbors are uh, not shining like giant solar lights like, like yours do, Shane, and you can have sort of a reason, reasonable sky. Whereas in my backyard, which I always say is horribly light polluted, uh, on a really good night, if I look straight up overhead, I can see the Milky Way. But I really find I can't do any profitable uh, deep sky observing because there's there's so much light around. It's just like reflections everywhere in the eyepieces and the telescopes and blah blah blah. I can do some planetary, but that's really it. So um, a- again, it's uh, it's it's highly highly variable. So, but everybody always wants to know, like, well, what is you know what what is your sky in a bortle sky, right? So it's kind of. A little bit of a, a confusing thing. So, what would what would your backyard be? I guess you'd be just looking at it here. You'd be what, like a Bortle
1: five or something like that in your backyard? Five and a half? Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, let me just see here. Uh, so, about five. So, only hints of zodiacal light are seen on the best nights. Light pollution is visible in most, if not all, directions. Clouds are noticeably brighter than the sky. The Milky Way is very weak or invisible near the horizon and looks washed out over ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Might even be like a six. Yeah. Like you said, five and a half. You know, something like that. You know, so six zodiacal light is invisible. That's certainly my backyard. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I don't think I have the second bullet. So light pollution makes the sky within 35 degrees of the horizon glow, growish grayish white. Yeah, maybe. I don't think I quite reach 35 degrees. Um, what else here? Milky way is only visible near Zenith. Can you see? Yeah. Even...
0: Sorry. Can you see the Milky way from your place at the Zenith like overhead?
1: Not every night. No. Yeah. No. So it's, yeah, I would say I'm at least a portal six, maybe even going six and a half. Actually. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I thought you might M33, be there M33, not visible. M31 is modestly apparent. Yeah. yeah even M31 would be a stretch naked eye. So.
0: Yeah. When I first moved to my place, like I could, I could like if, as long as the moon wasn't up, I could always see the Milky way, but I like, there's so much local light from like neighbors and backyard lights and that, that, like, you know, I remember reading in Terence Dickinson's uh, Backyard Astronomer's Guide saying, oh, if you can see the Milky Way at all, that's like, you should just set up an observatory right there. And now and be done with it. But I'm like, nah, no, it doesn't. <laughs> like, this is not a good spot. For, nobody's going to come to my yard and go, "Oh, wow, like we can see the Milky Way. Like nobody is going to say these words ever. It is not a good spot to do um, observing. But if you walk down to like the conservation area near my place, um, that can be, that can be okay, but even still it's, uh, it's really impacted by cars and house lights and, and street lights. So you're kind of going to be, you know, really, really getting inundated with the lights that are around, um, you know, everywhere, but out at, out of my, my dark sky site, which isn't like a pristine site. I always say it's, it's kind of like, uh, I always like to compare it to, uh, you know, like a, like a you know, something that's just reasonable. So I call it like the reasonably dark site. Um, but when I first was observing out here, I don't know. Like, I mean, when I look at this and I see like a Bortle five sky, which says it's a suburban sky where you get down to um, magnitude five, six to six in the orange zone. I don't know how accurate that is because I feel like a magnitude six sky is a pretty good sky. I feel like anything that's better than magnitude six is really good. And I felt almost like this site here, maybe was that on most nights. And then some nights it would just be getting into a, portal uh, Bortle four. Um, but, you know, when I talked to some of our listeners and they said that they're, Oh, they're under a portal four, but then they couldn't see the Milky way. And I'm like, well, I can see the Milky way easily from my place, mm-hmm. but I'm kind of telling myself that I'm, you know, sort of uh, a five or or a four point five maybe is is the best way to rate it. But they're saying, "Oh no, I'm under a uh, portal four, but I can't see them." Like, wait, I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. But I think they're just looking at the color coding on the uh, on the charts, perhaps. And then now I would say, um, because of the the adjustments to the local lighting ordinance, uh, we actually popped up. Um, a full Bortle scale, though, that is one way where it's useful. Uh, I would say I went from a 4.5 to a 3.5. I think when you were out here, you even noticed a two from, from last year where all those um, local street lamps that were really, really impactful and, and literally would cast shadows um, on the observing uh, site um, are now fully, sh- almost fully shielded, like 90% shielded. So the light pollution here is uh, is reduced and I'm getting uh, the better part of almost a full magnitude fainter. I can see before I could see the Milky Way, but I couldn't see detail down into Sagittarius. But now not only that, but I can actually pick out like M8, M20, 21 um, and details like that. Last year, I couldn't see Messier 55 from my observing site. I tried every night for weeks when it was uh, clear, dark, moonless, and never, ever could I see it. And then this year, the first time I tried, I nailed it and I've seen it. But on the most marginal nights, I can easily get M55 from this site in my, in my four inch this year. So <laughs> it, it is kind of an interesting thing, but uh, I, I don't know if it's something to really, I, I don't know if I can get M33 naked eye here. So I'm not going to say it's Bortle 3, I'm going to say it's four and a half. Anything in Bortle in 4 zone, zodiacal light, yeah, I can see that. Clouds are illuminated in the direction. Yeah, I can see the clouds getting illuminated surroundings are clearly visible even at a distance nope no i don't see things uh any yeah it's when it's dark here it's pretty hard to see anything around everything is pretty dark um milky Way, well above the horizon, is impressive but lacks detail i get detail now so it's a little bit better than four m33 is a difficult avert i haven't seen it naked eye yet has been high enough Limiting magnitude with 12.5 inch reflector is 15.5. I haven't tried that yet either. So yeah, but I wouldn't say that M33 would be easy, naked eye. And M4 is so low. M5, M22, those are all low.
1: Mm-hmm. I
0: don't know. Like I some of this stuff is uh is a bit difficult to uh uh to absorb and quantify. So I, I don't know. I think there's there's a few few holes in this. So it says that. Portal four is six one to six five, and portal three is six six to six seven. I've seen six five stars, so you know, it's it's a really it's either a really good uh, portal four or it's just barely a portal three, although I'm gonna just really call it like a three and three quarters. Whereas before I was probably four and a half, that's probably the best best way to put it. So anyway, it's sort of an interesting scale, you know, Mm -hmm. but but like I say, when somebody writes, I gotta. I gotta look it up though. I don't know about you, but I, I always gotta say, well, it's that it's that reverse of the of the larger numbers are gonna be associated with um the lower number of stars that always kind of throws me off a bit. I always want like the the number to equate to the magnitude of the stars, but like border one yeah. in my mind should be like, you know, really brightly lit. So not a, not as many stars, but it's the reverse. So to me it's not as intuitive, but maybe that's just. Me.
1: Yeah. I always think about it like, you know, your, your portal one through three, you know, you're dark, uh, you're going to have a really nice night, uh, observing, um, you know, four or five pretty dark, but not what I would consider like, you know, Uber, Uber dark. And then really from six to nine is you're, you're definitely in light pollution and uh, you know, it's impossible for me to remember all of these criteria for each, yeah. each of the, uh, uh, classes, but, so I just sort of chunk it up into sort of sections, you know.
0: Yeah, and then again, like I find, like the the variance is so huge depending on um, the observer and their experience and uh, and stuff like that. Like I, you know, for example, sometimes uh, I'll have people who show up to my astronomy class and they live somewhere dark. Um, maybe you know, the odd time somebody even in a in a dark place that I've uh, driven through and gotten out of the car and seen the Milky Way from. And I'll say, oh, you know, you must have seen the Milky Way. They're like, no, I don't know what it is. And then I describe it to them. They're like, oh, I don't know about that. And then they go out and the next week, oh, yeah, I can see that. But, mm-hmm. you know, up to that point, they said, oh, it seems dark, but I don't know how dark it is. Right. And uh, then I'm then I'm surprised sometimes when people say they're in a, they're in like a Bortle 4 or something, but that they can't see the Milky Way. I'm like, well, then is it like I don't understand how that could be a Bortle 4, but you can't see the Milky Way. Right. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, like, like you said, you know, same with that grassland. Sure. We go down there and then, uh, five, you know, literally, you know, it's 700, whatever square kilometers and five people show up with their uh, big RVs or fifth wheels or caravans or whatever you want to call them with the giant porch lights on them. And they, you know, three, two or three people flip those on and suddenly you've gone from a portal one to a, to a portal five. That's, uh, you know, I'd rather observe in, in your backyard, you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like really annoying. So it doesn't take much light to kind of spoil it, does it?
1: No, it doesn't. It really doesn't. Uh, well, and and we've mentioned this before when you're in like a Bortle one or maybe even a Bortle two, um, because it's so dark it's like a super sensitive location to any light so if you have somebody with like a little campfire going right yeah or uh you know if there's a washroom with like a white light that's kind of bright yeah you just notice it so much more and it becomes such a a factor whereas if you were in a place that had a little bit of light pollution this just doesn't even register anymore so um that's yeah. the other part of this that you know you have to factor into
0: yeah. It's like, uh, you know, like you're referring to there, I think is, is down in the grasslands. I think they're working to to rectify these is, is those washroom lights, which actually meet dark sky code compliant. However, because it's like ultimately dark there and they're meant that the, the coding was created sort of for the average dark sky place. So places that are probably more like, like a Bortle three or a Bortle four. But when you go and throw those same lights into a Bortle one sky, you're actually taking it to a bortle three, and and that's been really hard to overcome because if you went to like a really big national park where maybe it is just like a bortle four or, or maybe a bortle four and a half, like my place, and then you you had those kind of lights, just like lights like I have at my uh, at my cabin. When those lights are on, they, they can be a little annoying, but it doesn't really impact things as much because it's just a bortle three and a half or a bortle four anyway. But if we were down in the grasslands and you had those same lights, it's just going to feel like it's obliterating the night sky, even though it's it's just uh, just sort of taking you back to that level. That that's sort of been a difficult thing to uh, to try to explain it and, and work through with uh, outside agencies uh, that aren't run by amateur astronomers.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, just one of those one of those things. And then like here, for example, you know, it's kind of funny because sort of across uh, way across the valley. Um, there's a couple of roads over there and it's far. It's like, I don't know, like three kilometers or four kilometers. I don't know how far it is, but it's a few kilometers anyway. And, and when people pull in on those roads, like, holy cow, it seems so bright. Or when someone comes around the corner, like, you know, um, a mile, a mile away, there's, there's um, one of these full cutoff lights, but I think it's actually higher than me. And uh, it's a little bit annoying, but if you think about the fact that it's a mile away, and that's an, that's an annoying light. It, it kind of is indicative of, of, you know, how impactful light is once you start getting into dark sites, right? It just seems super annoying, even though if that was in the city and all the lights were like that, you wouldn't even notice them. Right. Yeah.
1: yeah. Just, no, that's another they, good point too. They would just sort sure. of disappear. Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely.
0: Cool. All right. Well, anything else to uh, add to this episode, Shane? No, that's it, Chris. All right. Well, thanks Shane. Thanks everybody for listening. Uh, be sure to subscribe in your podcatching software and uh, you can send in your observations uh, or, and or you can send in your astronomy puns to be entered uh, to win a copy of Sue French's deep sky wonders. Uh, you can send in your observations or puns to uh, actual astronomy at gmail.com. And those should be uh, astronomy oriented and in a particular observing um, puns, you know, mm-hmm. um, Uh, that then we'll do a draw in a month or so time for a copy of Sue French's Deep Sky Wonders donated to us by um, Jim, one of our listeners. And you can send those into actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thanks again, everybody.
1: Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.